From Vintage City Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, it's the Vintage Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Greg Sanders. Uh, hey, some of you came out, you've been coming out to our, uh, our question and answer time. So we've been doing Q&A, and I think we, we realized something that was really important, and that is that we think that that question and answer time creates a format. Some of you don't know what it is. Let me explain what it is. We've been working through the book of Corinthians. We've been 1 uh, Corinthians through the first eight chapters, and so today we begin in chapter 9. 1 Corinthians hits some humdinger stuff. I mean, there's some significant real-world applications to these things. And we live in a culture where there's, such a, there, there's so much difficulty in finding real-world application. And uh, I think the way I would say it is most of our culture believes that, you know, morality is gray and it's subject to preference. We don't. We believe the scriptures are really clear and that there's a black and there's a white. Um, what I think is gray at times is how do we love people in the midst of it? And so we're always in a process to learn that. But we had two issues that came up very, very strongly in our Q&A time. The first one was divorce, remarriage, and all the, the muddiness of that. I'll tell you, how many were at the Q&A time? How many would agree that those are some interesting conversations, right? I would love to just put a line in the sand and say this. To every voice, every person here under the sound of my voice, that's a very old school idea. That means if you can hear me, this is for you. The call of God on us is clearly to protect the sanctity of marriage. And from this moment forward, wherever you're at, work on your marriage. Make it great. Protect it. I want you to understand, in this culture, if, I, if it comes to my attention that I hear you guys are deciding about, you know, thinking about divorce, it's not working, we're going to be in your face on this because it's a biblical issue. We're going to stand in front of you in love and say, no, you're not. Protect the sanctity of this marriage. Stand together. Well, what do I do with my friends and family that are divorced? I don't know. The only answer I know how to give you is love them. For too long, the church has allowed misalignments to create harshness and judgment, and I just don't think that's where Jesus would land. If you're here uh, and you've been divorced and you're remarried and you're like, this is, this is awful, I feel so called out by this. That's not the point. The point is we believe the scriptures were given so we can have a righteous life. We can live according to them and walk in the blessing of the Father. We, we coined a phrase that is not biblical. Please hear me. It's not a Bible phrase. It's hard to unscramble an egg. What do we mean by that? Sometimes the only answer I know is move forward. Move forward in righteousness. Where do I get that from? Jesus, there's a couple moments where Jesus will encounter someone in the midst of sin. One of them is a woman at the well. She's been married five times. She's now living with a guy. So just push pause. Jesus calls out her living with a guy as sin. Therefore, we know it's sin to live together and not be married. We should be able to extrapolate that from that idea. But Jesus says to her, at the end of their conversation, he's talking about the water of life. He's talking about, 
If you just, if you drink from me, you won't be thirsty again. And then he makes this phrase to her that he says other places to other people in similar patterns of sin. Now go and sin no more. That Jesus clearly is focused on stopping the pattern and moving forward in righteousness. And so I think for us, that's the only answer I know to say that is, that is what it is. We don't want to try to reach back and do revisionist history and fix stuff. I don't know how to do that. What we do know is what our Savior modeled for us was when he encountered that, he would just say, stop and go sin no more. I had several emails and text messages this week about, hey, where do, you, where do we stand on gay marriage? I will tell you this, where we stand on gay marriage. We stand with the scriptures. We believe the scriptures declare very clearly marriage is between a man and a woman. That's where we stand. We stand with the scriptures. My heart is that we stand with the scriptures on everything. Where the scriptures are gray, we hold it in gray and we pray through it and we use love to govern it. Where the scriptures are black and white, we stand in that black and white. I woke up this morning and there was a phrase that was on my heart. The moment I gave myself to Jesus, I let go of my rights to hold my own opinions. And I said openly and publicly to him, I will now hold your opinions and I will uphold your truth. So no matter how I feel about something, if you say no, it's a no. If you say yes, it's a yes. I have two sons. I talk about them often. One of the things I love about them is they understand that there are some rules in the house that dad has declared, and because of our love for dad, we honor those rules. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning in 1 Corinthians 9, because that's what Paul is really talking about. This incredible exchange, and I would just love to submit a simple, simple idea to you. Whatever the scriptures declare, we are called to live. Period. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Even if others think I am not an apostle, I certainly am to you. This word apostle here means one who's been sent to you. It means one who, who hasn't a, we kind of try to make this word bigger than it's supposed to be. And we would, we would apply to it this, the, all these weird definitions. In its simplest definition, it means somebody sent by God to help establish the kingdom in your life. So he says, even if I'm not to anybody else, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. So this is my answer to those who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife with us as the other disciples and the Lord's brothers do? And as Peter does, or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? What soldier has to pay for his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion? Or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads on the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it is written for us, so the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, 
Aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we've never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet I've never used any of these rights. Am I, and I'm not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I'd rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I'm compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. If I were doing this of my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice. For God has given me this sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. So Paul's talking about his right to be supported by those who receive from his ministry. And he's also talking about his attitude towards the kingdom of God. And the, on the aspect of support, it's a spiritual principle that those who receive in the kingdom should invest in supporting it. I think we understand a principle that transcends just the church and it moves into the rest of our life. When we invest, we become vested. When we invest, we become vested. If I invest into something in life, my heart moves into that thing. My attitudes move into that. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And that principle is important for us to understand. So what can I invest? Now, I know Paul here is talking about food and drink. This would often be used directly connected to money. Paul's talking about survival. He's talking about being able to be there and work among them. But I think it's broader than that. If I ask the question, what can I invest in the kingdom? If I'm, if I'm in the kingdom and I'm part of a family of God and I'm, I'm in a church and, and I'm receiving of the ministry, what can I invest? I'd love to tell you this. My time matters. Each of us has time that we can invest. The gift of time. In our culture, I don't think there's a greater commodity than time. It's what we use to measure everything. I can give of my time. My resources matter. I can give of my finances. Abraham clearly teaches early with his example in Genesis that as a man who gives to the Lord, what he's, what he's saying, what he's making as a declaration when he gives to the Lord is that all that I have comes from you, so I'm going to give back to you as an evidence to the watching world that I trust you more than I trust life. That's really what's at the root of giving. You are not your own source. Jehovah Jireh, my God will provide for my needs according to his riches and glory. We're not on our own. We're not orphaned. We actually have the ability to give without stressing out. I would love to offer that my hospitality matters. Your hospitality is a gift. It's a resource that you can invest in others. So we look at these three things. Time, resource, hospitality. These are all things we can invest as, as we work to become a family of God, not just in this building, but in the city. I can invest those things. My heart cry is that as we grow in the kingdom, all of us are finding ways to invest these things in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is much bigger than vintage. 
The kingdom of God is a reality in a, in, in a city. It's a reality in the world, and all of us are called, according to Paul, to invest into it, not just to sit and take. And God's created a partnership for us to walk in. I think a lot of people ask, then they were probably asking this, why does the church run this way? Why are we supposed to give? You want to know the simplest answer? And I think you're going to laugh at it. Because uh, that's the way God created it. I'm not sure there's a better answer than that. This is the way the Lord teaches us to run the church. All of us have things we can invest. I think we're all called to give of our tithe. We're all called to give offerings. We're all called to give of our hospitality and of our time. That's what it looks like to become a family. Have you ever been in a family dynamic situation where um, my youngest at times struggles with this? I call it the prince of the house syndrome. And it's not a malicious thing. It's just that at times he doesn't quite understand that there are several jobs that he could engage and do and he would find greater value with the family instead of letting them be done for him. And so part of my job as a father is to say, hey buddy, I need you to engage. I need you to engage in what's going on in the house. We're not here to lift you up in a wicker basket so you can be taken care of. We're here to love you, but part of you loving us is that we together do this. Can I say it's the same thing in the church? We together do this. We find a place to give our life away. It's unique to some of us. Some of us, maybe you say, you know what, I'm going to give my life away in the hospitality ministry. I love greeting people. Fabulous. Do that. But maybe you say, you know what, what my passion is, my passion is to pray. Guess what? That matters. You know what? My passion is to play guitar. Great. Whatever we do, we do it with excellence because Paul teaches this principle that when we invest, we become vested. And as with anything in life, our attitude, John Maxwell says it best, our attitude affects our altitude. If my attitude is frustrated and I'm in the moly grubs, I can't believe they want me to do this. Can't they put a doorstop in instead of having me hold the door for people? All of a sudden, I don't get a whole lot of blessing back in that moment. I'm not soaring on wings of eagles because I'm groveling and I'm angry and I'm irritated. And, and, and Paul begins to deal with this. And what he really shares in this is that if we don't align with the attitude that he's going to share with us, investing in the kingdom becomes difficult and it opens a door for offense in our life. Your attitude is one of the most unique things to control offense in your life. If your attitude is right, how is my attitude right? My attitude is right when, what is the attitude on a plane? Anybody here fly? Do you know what the attitude on a plane is? Doesn't it speak to where the nose angle's at? Can I tell you, this might be your attitude right here. When your nose angle's towards heaven, it's easy for your attitude to be right. But when your nose angle's looking down at other people around you, it's very difficult for your attitude to be right. It's very difficult for you to live the life God's called you to live. It's very difficult for you to have the trajectory that God's called you to have. So Paul will go on and talk about the attitude that he carries. And he, he uses a phrase that's important for us to understand. Of my own will, I have no choice. Preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I'm compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. 
If, it were, if I were doing this of my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me this sacred trust. I'm going to look at that for a couple minutes. As we study the root of that, I have no choice, the root word literally means against my will. And then the next phrase is God has given me this sacred trust. The word phrase means to be entrusted with the management of something. So what Paul declares in essence is that he was so overwhelmed by the goodness of God that he had no option. Did he have an option? Don't you have an option? Yeah, of course we do. I have an option. I could walk away and say, I'm not doing that. But I want you to consider this option. If in pursuit of Jesus, Jesus says to you, here's what I want from you. Here's the life pattern I want from you. It begins here. Study the scriptures. Show yourself approved. Begin to live them out. And then as you search out the scriptures, God begins to to put something in your heart to do or, or calling. To stand in front of him and say no reminds me of a guy in scripture. How many remember the story of Jonah? Jonah is a man in scripture who had a call from God. The Lord spoke to him, go do this. Go to Nineveh, preach. Now, Jonah knew who the Ninevites were. They were a pagan city. There was no belief there at all. Full debauchery. And Jonah's response is, no. Because if I go preach your love and your mercy and your grace and your truth, they're going to see it for what it is, and they're going to repent, and then you're going to be nice to them, and I think they're idiots, and I don't want you to be nice to them. He was really honest about why. So he decides, I'm going to run away from the call of God in my life. I'm going to go the opposite direction, and if I'm going the opposite direction, I won't be held accountable for what God asked me to do. And so Jonah gets on a boat, and the storm comes up really, really incredibly, and the ship captain, can you imagine being on an airline when they hit turbulence, if this is how all the captains processed? The captain says, there must be somebody here who's made God angry. Anybody? And Jonah's like, yeah, it's my fault. Okay, cool. And they throw him overboard. Can you imagine turbulence? The captain gets on, all right, which one of you is not living right? Get the parachute, send him out. So this is what happens, and Jonah hits the water, and instantly a a whale swims up and swallows Jonah. And you're like, this cannot be true. It is. And inside the belly of this whale, the whale in this moment is, is a picture of the difficulties that we invite into our lives through disobedience. In this moment of disobedience, he has a revelation. Long story short, Whale vomits him out. I would love to just stop right there and say sometimes the way God gets you out of tough situations isn't a whole lot prettier than the way he got you into them. But just always remember, you got yourself there. In his mercy, he will get you out of it. So Jonah, with vomit all over him, cleans up, heads to Nineveh. I know on the flannel graphs in Sunday school, they didn't show the puke, but it was there. So he gets up and he goes, and and sure enough, that's what happens. I would love to just have you consider that following Jesus isn't a choose-your-own-adventure thing. There's a call of God. There are things that he calls us to. And what I love that's going on here is that Paul understands this isn't about my choice. This is about his choice. He calls the shots. He's the king. 
I'm the servant. I would love for all of us to walk into alignment with that truth. He's the king, I'm the servant. How he says to live, whether I like it or not, is how I'll live. And there's a beautiful truth here that God's granted us a partnership with him that's not dependent upon desires, but it's dependent upon our commitment to him. So therefore, whether I like the calling that's in front of me doesn't matter. It's of no importance. I can be faithful without having to want to. Why? Because I love the one who's asked me. And some of you are facing life situations where you're at a crossroads of obedience or disobedience and you're trying to figure out how to want to obey and that's the wrong question. The question is, do I love the one that's telling me to obey? Because if I love the one that's telling me to obey, I can obey without concern. I can give myself permission to not even like what I'm doing, but I'm gonna be faithful to it because he asked me to and I trust him. I trust him more than I trust me. We will say those phrases, I trust God more than I trust myself. I can tell you the litmus test for whether or not I trust God more than I trust myself is whether or not I'm willing to do what he says. Because at the moment that I choose my own desire, I have now abdicated my trust of him and I've decided I trust in myself more. I think our free will can be conquered by surrendering to him. When we surrender in obedience to the things he's called us to, it becomes an agent in our life to help soften and break our sinful free will. Discipline. Jesus learns obedience to the Father through the things that he enjoyed. Wait, time out. That's not what it says. Jesus learns obedience to the Father through the things that he suffered which means that Jesus had a constitution in his own faith that said, I don't have to like it to go through it. And the principle on the other side is that God uses those tough situations. I don't care if it's your marriage. I don't care if it's your job. I don't care if it's your calling. It doesn't matter. God will take those difficult circumstances and he will use them to transform you and make you into his image. And Paul says, e even though I'm a free man with no master, I've become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. And we're going to stop there. Let's stand. We'll pick this up next week. I know. You're like, what? Really? Yeah, time's up. Beep. School bell. It's recess. Come on. You're all right. Let's stand this morning. We're giving you the gift of time. We're honoring yours. Father, we stand before you and we love you. I love that your word is strong, but it's easy. It's clear. There's no confusion in what Paul's saying. You have called us as part of the family to invest in the kingdom. And you have called us to lay down the need to want to and just be faithful to serve. We love you and we honor you today. Thank you for the gift of this weather. Thank you for the lives that we get to live. We ask that your face would shine upon us this week and you'd be with us in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more great content, please visit us on the web at vintagecitychurch.com.